Unless I'm going the Sean Connery avatar direction. Hey, you could have multiple avatars. You know, your avatar doesn't even have to be human. But I wonder how many Sean Connerys you're going to run into. <laughs> Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Earthlings podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, consultant, and energy wonk. And I'm your other co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I handle PR for companies in the energy transition. I used to be an NPR reporter, and I support my ladies with women in clean tech and sustainability. Oh, Lisa Ann is so humble, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> She's an award-winning reporter, by the way. Uh, anyway, Lisa Ann was just at the Consumer Electronics Show. That's right. The CES which has been called the largest consumer electronic show in the world. And, you know, it's not as big as it was before the pandemic in terms of numbers of people attending, because back then there were literally hundreds of thousands of people yeah, arriving. Com completely takes over Las Vegas for a week. It's insane. Here we are. We're in the, you know, the pandemic is raging. People are getting Omicron left and right. So a lot of it was virtual, but it still brought hundreds of the world's largest tech companies and showed off the cutting edge of technology. Mm -hmm. So Lisa Ann, what was it like this year? So yeah, you know, attendance was down and you could really tell that at the show. And this is no, nothing, you know, no insult to CES. They really did their best, but, you know, with the COVID situation that they had, which is basically Omicron breaking we literally a week before CES. So there were a lot of booths that were empty. There were several booths that were set up and they had big QR codes that said, meet us in our virtual booth or meet us in our metaverse booth. And we'll, we'll talk about metaverse in a little bit. The LG booth, I'd say, was probably three times larger than they had planned for it to be just so it could take up space in the hall. So that was interesting. Uh, but there were still a lot of really cool companies, a lot of electric vehicle companies, you know, space companies, automation, autonomous vehicles, robots, health tech of all kinds, lots of several companies out there saying, you know, you can track your vitals as you work out. I don't, I think I started getting tired of seeing the tagline, your personal trainer, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay. Everybody needs to come with something original, but there was uh gaming, obviously VR was very big food tech, uh, vertical farming, restaurant tech, making those more autonomous in the world of COVID. Oh, and uh, a lot of micromobility stuff. And uh, I can't tell you how many booths I saw that were peddling massage chairs. Like this must be a thing with the pandemic. And also the thing about CES is that it is the U.S. show for Asian technology companies. So no matter what kind of technology company you have, you bring yourself to CES, you set up a booth and you have your U.S. meetings. So I think a lot of these companies were distributors of these massage chairs. And I think massage chairs are kind of like the Peloton, a bike <laughs> With COVID, you know, every, I can't go get my massage, so I'm going to buy myself a massage chair. And um, I think I saw a lot of people sleeping in those chairs, to be sure. <laughs> you know, that's funny because a massage chair is not a terribly high-tech thing. Mm -mm. I mean, this is where you go to see the cutting edge of technology, and there's a lot of massage chairs. Yes. But let's get into some of that tech. I mean, yeah. a lot of different thing, angles we could go here. Let's start with the metaverse mm, yes. and virtual reality. So... Okay, what is the metaverse? 
the metaverse. Now, most people have thought probably know about it because Facebook rebranded as meta and that sort of brought the whole concept uh, into the forefront of our minds. But the metaverse is actually just a simulated digital environment that uses augmented reality or virtual reality. And um, it could use blockchain, it can use social media, but the whole point is that you're creating these virtual spaces for rich user interaction and you're, and it mimics the real world. Now it could be a fantasy world, but it still mimics sort of the laws of our own physics, if you will, right? I'm going to jump, I'm going to walk, look around, those kinds of things. So how's that different than virtual reality? Well, I think virtual reality, the metaverse can be synonymous with virtual reality, or you also hear it not turned as cyberspace. I think virtual reality is the technology that puts you into the metaverse. Oh. The goggles. There's a couple of devices where you can run in place and move around, but still stay in a general area. And so you get like actual movement when you're in virtual reality. That sounds a little dangerous. That sounds like the police officers who were fired recently for chasing Pokemon Go characters <laughs> while they were supposed to be on. I, this is a, <laughs> I actually heard this on the news. I kid you not. So to step, but um, this idea of the metaverse, like so many things that are in our world today, didn't this start in a science fiction? Oh, yes. One of my favorite authors of all time, I'm Neil Stevenson. And if you haven't read any of his books, I highly recommend you start because they're very good. He termed the metaverse in 1992 in his novel Snow Crash, which was his breakout novel. And then it's been used in a variety of different ways since then. Now, of course, we might hear, I think a lot of people have heard about Metaverse lately because of Facebook branding itself as Meta. And But do, does Facebook own the Metaverse? No, you can have multiple Metaverses. Uh, okay. <laughs> <sighs> I'm relieved. Not that I'm planning on going to the Metaverse, but you know, I, this, I said the same thing about Twitter. 12 years ago, I told myself, I, I was convinced that I would, I didn't know what Twitter was, but I was convinced that I would never use it. Mm. So who knows? You know, I mean, I'll say I went into CES with somewhat a cynical view of the metaverse and I came out with a lot of excitement for it. Yeah. So tell me about some of the products that you saw there for the metaverse. I mean, how do you have product for the metaverse? Aren't they virtual products? Tell me what you saw there. How were people... What sort of devices or, or platform, how were people? Yeah, like what do you do with there? the metaverse in the real world? Yeah, so, yeah that, that's, that's the question <laughs> I wanted. Thank you. They, um, there were a lot of companies out there that were offering a variety of services to help you design your, your metaverse real estate or, you know, your fake estate or your faux estate. How <laughs> We're going to come up with a term for that. Guaranteed. So, you're not real estate. You're not your <laughs> unreal estate. <laughs> unreal estate. And there are several companies out there that would help you build that. And uh, there's a variety of platforms and other services that go into making uh, an avatar, you know, um, a realistic or or follow your facial expressions or these types of things in the metaverse. So there's lots of companies that'll do that. There's a big duty-free company that had a bunch of VR headsets that people were shopping in their metaverse store. And they could also watch a metaverse concert. And that's how they were demonstrating their faux estate. 
Now, I can't see myself going to any Metaverse concerts soon. I Maybe it's because I don't go to a lot of real-world concerts, but I used to, you know, back when I lived in New Orleans and hung out with, knew a lot of musicians. Yeah, I would go see concerts all the time. So, okay, so you go into the Metaverse and you have your avatar, which is your representation of yourself, which obviously um, is more handsome and uh, more stylish. And Does your younger. avatar have more hair? You know, my, my avatar is not actually as bald as I am. Except I don't have an avatar. Let's be clear about that. But if it, you know, all of these things, unless I'm going the Sean Connery avatar direction. Hey, you could have multiple avatars. You know, your avatar doesn't even have to be human. But I wonder how many Sean Connerys you're going to run into. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other matter. So... I understand there are companies that actually help you build an avatar. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all different types of avatars and probably in the future we'll have multiple ones. You might have your work avatar. You might have your dating avatar, um, your non-human avatar. And right now the avatars are a little clunky. Uh, they're maybe a little static. Uh, but I did come across one startup in a little booth in the corner at the Venetian Conference Center uh, out of the Ukraine. And they have figured out a way to use just a few sensors and the camera on your phone to help you fully animate your avatar in real time. And so you don't Hmm. need the bulky headset. So you can interact with the metaverse on your phone and you can make your avatar move, including your facial expressions. And so the company's name is Mana. And I spoke with their CEO. My name is Oleg Drea. I'm the CEO and founder of MANA. And actually, uh, MANA is an interactive 3D media production platform. And actually, MANA allows anyone to create interactive media content together with friends. And we provide the functionality, collaboration tools, and the motion capture technology. So in simple terms, what is the problem right now when it comes to avatars and, and the technology that creates them? There is a huge amount of apps which provide you the ability to build your own avatar or you can buy avatars from the marketplace. But there is not a single platform where you have the ability to use those avatars simply and intuitively so that there is no friction, there is no uh, manual uh, craftsmanship to animate those avatars. And we believe that the major challenge for the metaverse, metaverse type projects will be the ability for average unskilled creator to create uh, animated content together with friends. So unlike TikTok, Instagram, some legacy social media platforms where you can record standalone video, in Mana people will be able to get together in a shared environment without VR headset but just using the, uh, the smartphone in their pocket and they can collaboratively create uh, XR content. So you're allowing for the more effective animation of someone's avatar it becomes intuitive. So actually the avatar becomes lifelike because avatars replicate your facial emotion, body movements. And in fact, avatar becomes an extension of, of you, of your body. So there is no friction. You can just do whatever you want and avatar replicates everything. Uh, finally, we uh, democratize virtual production of studios. So now you can build movies like Marvel movies together with your friends. That's really nice. And tell me about the NFT aspect of, of what you guys are doing here. We are building the marketplace which will allow developers to sell their 3D assets like characters, objects, worlds as NFTs to creators. And creators, once they buy them, and this will be really easy, like swiping people on Tinder. So you can really take the avatar which you need in the 3D world 
and you start streaming your own imaginative world. You get your friends around and you can improvise and you can record what is happening, this interactivity, like content. So once you have this video, you can add visual effects, music, and you can list this video back to the marketplace and sell it as NFT to fans, collectors, and producers. Also, our creators are able to um, allocate upfront a portion of the proceeds from NFT sales to their contributors. So everybody is incentivized to participate, to launch streams, and to collaborate with other people. And all you need is your smartphone and, and your app. Sensors. And if you have sensors, okay. yeah, from six to 12 sensors. And how would you, where would you put those sensors? How would it work? You have to put sensors on your feet, on your hands, uh, so from six to 12 sensors. When you have six sensors, it's just enough to make the motion capture of your upper body, which is good for VTubers which are seated and which are just making e-commerce, for example. But 12 sensors will allow your full body motion capture, so you can walk and you can have your avatar replicating your full body performance. And you can, you can have your phone in your hand, you can wave around your phone, you can see the 3D world in your phone, so everything works in real time and your avatar becomes an extension of you. You know, this is all really interesting, but I, ha I have a hard time imagining what we would use the metaverse for. I mean, I have a hard time thinking about why I would go into a virtual reality. I, I like the real reality, and I can't imagine what would be better in virtual reality versus reality. So what would you use the metaverse for? Well, thankfully, I've read a lot of science fiction, so I have some ideas. <laughs> um, our podcast is a very good example. Like right now, you and I both have multiple screens and we're working on small laptops. So we have these screens like layering each other so that we can see each other and we can see our audio recording, and our scripts, our notes. And uh, in the metaverse, we could meet in our virtual studio and we could design it however we want it to look. And I could see you, you could see me and we could have these screens, but they could just sort of be floating around us. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with work from home being more popular than companies probably expected, there's probably going to be metaverses that companies set up to make you show up there to be in a quote unquote, you know, virtual meeting so that you're like more in person with each other than just on video. Uh, shopping, I think for me, I don't really like online shopping. There's a lot of hunting and pecking. You're looking at clothing. You don't exactly know how it would fit on you. And you might have an avatar that is exactly your size um, and weight. Like your other avatars might be a little skinnier, might be a little taller. But <laughs> For me, actually, they wouldn't be skinnier <laughs> or taller. But it would be really useful to be able to find pants that fit me online, which so far is I am like zero for that. Mm -hmm. That does not happen. Mm -hmm. I order pants online, they don't fit. Yeah. It's like I, I can't do it without going into a store. So I could actually do this. Like, you know, you could try and close with your avatar and yeah, exactly. you might get clothes that fit. Mm -hmm. Is that the way this works? That's kind of, like there was a company huh. with a booth that was, that was showing that. Yeah. That, that does sound useful. I also, um, anyway, I'm excited about, about the metaverse and virtual reality, but a lot of people probably are between 20 and 80% of people who try VR end up getting VR sickness, like motion sickness. Whoa. Okay. Virtual reality sickness. Mm-hmm. Okay, explain this to me. How does this work? So basically what's happening is your eyes are seeing something that's artificial, but your inner ear doesn't have that information. Mm. So you might be moving around to something 
in the virtual world, or you might be watching something moving in the virtual world and, you know, perception is changing and, and such, but it's not changing for your physical body and your ear doesn't know what to do. Your inner ear doesn't know what to do. And so then you start to get motion sickness. Yeah, I can totally see that. Ha- right. That, that makes sense. So let me guess, there were companies there that have products to deal with <laughs> yes. this. Yes, <laughs> there was. Actually, I spoke with the CEO of Synetic, which is a company in France. And uh, I had a clip, but the audio didn't turn out. So I feel bad. So I'm just going to tell you what they do. And then there'll be a link to the company in our show notes. Actually, all the companies that I mentioned today will have links in the show notes. So you can check them out. But so what they've done is created these tiny little screens that go basically on your temples, either separately or built into the VR headset. And they're these little screens that look like a grid, probably like four lights across and four lights down, like a square. And they're white lights. And uh, what they do is they they send, the, these light signals are sent to your peripheral field of view. And that synchronizes with um, your eyes and your balance system uh, within your body and what you're seeing on the screen. It's all synced together. So it's tracking your head movement and it's sending mm. you light signals to match up with what you're seeing on the screen. This is, I didn't get a chance to experience it, but this is the gist of what I understand. Um, so that you can spend a long time immersed in VR without getting sick. Uh, right. Because that's what we need is more people who are not spending time <laughs> in the real world because social media <laughs> is obviously not bad enough. Okay. Well, I'm just saying, I, mean, I have some major reservations, especially considering some of the companies that have gotten involved in this space. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, if the real world is getting more difficult, I mean, more challenging because of things like climate change and extreme inequality, how easy will it be to simply peace out into the virtual world where things are nicer? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like as human beings, we have this almost infinite capacity for escapism, which is already being tapped in a major way by the internet. So... Regardless, speaking of big escapes, yes. I understand that there was a lot at CES about space yes. and space travel, yes. which is fascinating because, okay, let's just give this some context here. When I was growing up, we were dealing with space 1.0, you know, I, I, certainly it was after the moon landing, but it was still like the United States and the Soviet Union. Yes, I'm that old. We're sending rocket stuff into outer space and they were doing things in outer space, but everything was done by the government. It was done by NASA. You know, it was done by national governments in the last few years with SpaceX. That's totally changed. Private companies are in space now. Mm -hmm. Billionaires are in space. I mean, of course, capitalism was going to come everywhere, right? So sooner or later, the big companies are going to come into space. So yeah, Tell me about what you saw at CES in this, oh no, I, I did it, in this space. <laughs> I, I, I We're just, keeping that, was, that in. That's staying in. Oh, That's hilarious. I, that was an accident. That was, <laughs> yeah. Just own it, Christian. Own I'm the trying, pun. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, just like how the, I think the U.S. federal government, that the military pioneered GPS, and now we have all of these maps on our phones that we can use. Very similarly, they have sort of incubated space, if you will. And now there's companies that see money. There's money in space. Business in space. (laughs) If anybody gets that reference, hit us up Uh, on Twitter and we will, you know, do something special for you. But that is a specific reference from the 80s and... 
I'd oh, like to know I who gets it. Um, oh, know that one. Anyway, so the company I spoke to is called Sierra Space. And they'd only launched like six months uh, prior. Uh, so if you haven't heard of them, that's why. No worries. They have a partnership with Blue Origin. And they are going to get started by supplying the International Space Station, ISIS, with an autonomous spacecraft that they're designing. Well, they actually have already designed it and flown it. Uh, and then they'll eventually shuttle people to space, to the space station, uh, replenish that station. And eventually they want to build their own commercial space station. They want to be a business park in space, basically. Okay. As long as it's not a strip mall in space, I think we're okay. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I just noticed the acronym for the International Space Station is ISIS. I know. Is Homeland Security seizing all of their invoices every time they send, every time they try to do a wire transfer to somebody? I'm just wondering. Not like this has ever happened to me before when I accidentally use that acronym in an invoice. Um, uh, So, Uh, so, um, the concept here that I think is going to really grab people or be like one of the first sort of entrepreneurial enterprises in space is zero gravity manufacturing. So there's a lot of science that's come out of the ISIS station that uh, demonstrates that when there isn't any gravity involved, certain scientific processes perform better and products are better, uh, more efficient or more improved. Fiber optics is an example. And so this could open up a whole new economy in space, in the nearish future. And so I spoke with John Roth, who is the vice president of business development at Sierra Space in front of their big model aircraft. Uh, They had a big booth there at CES. Rather than being a startup, we're a spinoff of another defense company, Sierra Nevada Corporation. So we started with a multi-billion dollar backlog and 1,100 employees. So it's not a typical startup company. We, as part of the spinoff, we took uh, ownership of the Dream Chaser space vehicle. And Dream Chaser is going to be a cargo and crew transport system for low Earth orbit. We're currently under contract with NASA for seven cargo missions to the ISS. Uh, We announced uh, just at the beginning of this year that with the investment money we raised last year, which was $1.4 billion, we're going to finish the crewed vehicle on our own nickel and and provide that as a crew vehicle that can go to ISS or go to our own destination. So did I did I hear you say, or maybe I heard it from someone else, uh, that there's an, a, there's an autonomous aspect to these vehicles? This vehicle flies totally autonomous. Uh, doesn't have to be piloted. It's not controlled from the ground. Uh, we, we pre-program where it's going to go. It knows its own location. It picks its own flight path. And, and so you can, you can launch from the ground and dock to ISS without any intervention. Fascinating. Cargo vehicle will be flying later this year. First launch for NASA will be late this year. The crew vehicle we're just starting the development of, so it'll be another few years before we have a crew vehicle. But we want to have the crew vehicle flying before we put up our space station, which will be before the end of the decade. Because the other big thing we're focused on is building a commercial space station. Uh, NASA has decided they're not going to replace the ISS. They're looking, leaving it to commercial companies to build something in space. And we took on that challenge, and we decided we thought we had the best technology between our transportation vehicle and we have an inflatable structure that we can launch in a a regular launch vehicle, but it grows to more than double its size in space, becomes a three-story building in space because it's inflatable. So we thought, well, we've got the transportation, we got the destination, 
we ought to just make this our next project. And what do you expect, uh, what type of activities would you expect to occur on a commercial space station? You know, it's kind of funny because everybody wonders, well, what are you going to do in space? We started our investigation about a year ago. We found 200 companies that had business plans for doing things commercially in low Earth orbit. And some of it is manufacturing. A lot of people have talked about fiber optics because you can make super efficient fiber optics in space without gravity. Uh, bio, bio manufacturing is a huge area. There's, a, there's leukemia drugs and Alzheimer's drugs that they've demonstrated on ISS in very small quantities, but they can't mass produce it on ISS. They need a commercial platform that is set up as a, a laboratory where they could get FDA approval. Right now, the ISS is not set up for that at all. So what we discovered was there's actually been a number of technologies that have been developed and shown on ISS to work, but there's no way to scale it to make it commercially viable. So that's why we decided, okay, there's a market. We just need to put the destination in place that allows them to make these businesses grow. It, I have to say, it kind of blows my mind that there could be materials and uh, technology devices manufactured in space that you can only achieve up there because of the zero gravity and the new world of science that might open up because of, of this unique environment. It's the way the, the crystals grow in space. They, there's no gravity to affect them. So they grow in very, very regular formations and you can control how they grow, which you can't do on the ground. What that means is you can make super efficient materials in space, but you have to produce them in space. You can't bring them back and, and produce them on Earth. So we need a manufacturing facility where you can build those things in space. And I tell you, the, the biomanufacturing area is the one that excites me the most because they can do 3D tissue printing in space and conceivably could build an organ that they could, they could deliver down to the Earth and do organ transplants with something they build in space, which boggles my mind. And I don't understand the science, but it's possible. And, that, and it would also probably be... Uh, you know, perfect for your body according to your DNA right. and you your could, blood type. You could match things. It could be, be identical. You just be... can't do it on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we're convinced there's a market. There, it, it, there's no doubt. We've seen the, the science that's come off of ISS. They, we look at ISS as an incubator. You know, they prove that something can be done. And then we take what they prove can be done and we go figure out how do we build a facility that can allow them to manufacture it. So then that also that'll leads to the need for uh, workers in space to maintain this, um, this space station, correct? You would have employees up there. And how long do you think they would be up in space? Yeah, so one of our big goals is to automate this because what kills the cost on the space station is the O&M, operations and maintenance cost. And we don't want to be killed by that. So we are fully automating. We have robotics inside. We have robotics outside. And we have... We're working with the latest technologies from the companies that can remotely monitor things. We have, we're going to have the voice activation where the people on board can just talk to the computers and the computers can talk back and all the cool stuff that's being demonstrated here at the Consumer Electronics Show. And that was fascinating stuff from John Roth. There's a lot of things we can do in space. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is to grow food. I understand that you saw a company there that's making the edibles 
in space. <laughs> how did how did that work? Nutritious edibles, not the other kind of edibles. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I meant. Yes. Although, you know, if there's no laws oh, in space. That's next. Hmm. That's next. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the company was called InThing. And they are a virtual farming company where they're focused on modular farming in containers. So not a big building with a full floor, uh, but these sort of like think of them as shipping containers and you can have several of them on your property growing different types of food. And this way you can better control for the environment that the plant specifically needs, humidity, uh, temperature, light, etc. And so if you can control all of that uh, and drop a container anywhere in the world, as long as you have power, you can grow food, then logically you could do that in space. Ah, but this is also for terrestrial applications. Mm -hmm. I mean, say I'm in Greenland and I'm really missing my veggies Mm -hmm. and I have a, you know, are these climate control chambers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they have like a whole software thing around it and like um, data analytics and like they'll run the whole thing for you. You don't have to really do anything except provide it power. So I can see this being super applicable for the era of climate change, but it also seems like this isn't something that we're probably going to use to, say, grow corn or wheat or maize or soybeans in. Nah. This is probably more for specialized crops and specialized circumstances. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an amateur gardener, so I, can, I probably know just enough to be dangerous. Herbs and lettuces, strawberries, berries of many kinds um, tend to be a little bit more temperamental. So you want to be able to control for them better. When I was gardening in, you know, the Midwest before I moved out to California and lived in an apartment and could and all I could do was pot gardening, which is not nearly as fun as taking over an abandoned yard next to your house. So like you really only could get like two or three rounds of lettuce if you're planting outside because you want to do it early in the spring and you want to control mm-hmm. for the shade, partial light, partial shade. And right. And they're just, you know, they're delicate little plants. So it also solves for pests, you know, the fact that in the Midwest, good luck growing anything six months out mm-hmm. of the year. Or in the desert. So you can get year round food or in the desert. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, a lot of these, I suppose you could probably, this would work for container ships mm-hmm. if you or or some shipping if you were in, in long term shipping, you know, and you wanted to keep some fresh veggies on hand. I, you know, I can just think of like dozens of places where you could use this. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like the logical extension of a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. You know, we have greenhouses and then this is the next step, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense to me. And so that's why I stopped at their booth and talked to Dan Park. We use the hydroponics. We only use water. Also, we provide turnkey solution. We provide hardware and software and service. So anyone who doesn't have a knowledge on agriculture uh, can grow any, any kind you want. What we see in your booth is all some shelving with some plants growing with some lighting. And then, and then there's a big screen and it shows that some of this could be applicable to Mars. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you might uh, translate this container uh, growing operation uh, onto another planet? So uh, it's another reason uh, we choose container farm type is uh, it's, it's, it's scalable and flexible and portable. So uh, we, can, we can shoot our container farm to anywhere around the world in two months, anywhere, even in Africa, Alaska. So we see the even in the 
Mars, we can shoot it container for easily. We can ship, like, we, we can put the container inside the ship and then just shoot it. That's it. So how many seasons, growing seasons, can you get out of a, uh, one of these containers in a year? So for basing lettuce kind, uh, lettuce, we can, uh, there is uh, 13 cycles per year. Okay. And one cultivation module based in lettuce, ramen, uh, we can, it can produce four metric ton per year. So uh, what do you see happening in the vertical farming industry in like the next 10 years? Next 10 years. I mean, the, everybody knows climate change is coming. And especially uh, for nowadays, COVID situation. So the country, uh, it uh, depends on the, rely on the imported. They, they need to, they have to like have this kind of solution. It's no choice. It's not, it's not an option anymore, I think, I believe. So, this is a consumer electronics show. Did you see any other food tech that could be used for everyday use? Yes, actually, I did. There's this company out of uh, South Korea called Wrinkle, uh, R-E-E-N-C-L-E. And again, we'll put the links in the show notes. And they have this kitchen-to-garden fertilizer composter. So anybody who's composted at home, like myself, with my garden, you basically, it's like a two-step process. You have the, your little counter con, uh, compost container where you put all your food waste as you're cooking. And then once it gets full, you take it out to the bigger bin. And that's where you actually make your compost. And there's two big problems with this, right? Number one, that little container, uh, the food starts to decompose on your counter as soon as you put it in there. And so it'll stink, mold will grow in there. And then fruit flies come from nowhere, miraculously uh, they you know they're on the food uh, right the eggs are on the food and so then there's always they are everywhere there's always yeah eggs are everywhere so yeah. they're fruit so the just like there's always fruit flies and so you, like you you try to open up your container and shove the food in without like letting too many out um, mm-hmm. and it stinks and it's gross and then your outdoor bin if you're not churning it properly if you're not giving it the right level of ingredients what have you it can take a long time to decompose right So what they've done is said, let's just bring it all into the uh, kitchen and create sort of a a receptacle that's slightly smaller than a, a, like a kitchen trash can. And it uses heat and it uses enzymes Mm. to break down the uh, food waste in a really uh, quick way. And Mm. so uh, I spoke to one of their representatives on the floor. For example, fruit or pasta or chicken, like pizza. So normally you wouldn't put meat products or dairy products in your compost, sort of in your backyard. So why would this device be different? And describe what we're looking at here. Right. Because of the temperature inside is 45 Celsius. So because of that, those bacteria which go stink cannot survive. And we also have a two-more filter system. Uh, which eliminate the odors. So you say you sell these in South Korea. Tell me about what the market is like there. Oh uh, yeah, actually we sell a lot in Korea. So we sell ten thousand units per month, and we record number one in the food waste composter. Yes. So why is composting so big in in Korea? Uh, so actually, uh, in Korea, it's mandatory to separate food waste from general waste. 
and we must go to the common place to dump the food waste. That's why some people feel very inconvenient because most of Korean people live in the apartment. So take, they take the food waste in the lift, you know, it smells, right? So because of that, they want to buy the indoor like, kitchen composter to deal with the food waste. How long has Korea been requiring the separation of food waste with other waste? Uh, I don't know exactly, but it's like almost like 30 years now, I think. So it's really part of the culture at this point. Yes, yes, it is exactly because of the culture. Like, I think Korea is the most like strict country that control about the waste. We like recycle all things like plastic, like a can and even like food waste. So uh, what happens when this is full mm-hmm. when it's, and it's all compost? What do you do? Uh, at that time, you use the shovel and take like one third of that and can be used as a compost. But you must mix with the soil and put it into the plant. Yes. So Wrinkle's really hitting the market at a really great time. Uh, Christian, I don't know if you know about this, but in January 1st of 2022, The state of California made it a law that all municipalities must offer organic waste collection services to all their residents and businesses. This has been in the works since 2016, but it's actually official now. And, you know, people aren't going to get fined if they uh, put food waste in their trash for now. But that's probably going to come eventually. Well, who knows? I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to be the the trash police. But... (laughs) I think it's going to like incentivize people similar to what the gentleman said on the clip about how South Korea has really for the past 30 years, you know, they've been composting because it's still required that you not put uh, organic waste in the trash. I think people in California are also going to be incentivized to do this and they'll probably, you know, think about making their own fertilizer with the wrinkle device. Yeah, you know, and it makes sense. And honestly, this is a climate thing. Mm-hmm. People don't realize this, but landfills emit methane. And a lot of that is the rotting organic waste. And while this may not show up as that big of a deal in measurements of greenhouse gases based on 100-year assessments, if you look at the 20 years assessments of greenhouse gas potency, methane shows up a lot more. In fact, I just got done going over the climate plan for the state of New York, and landfills were 12% of their total greenhouse gas emissions because they used a 20-year accounting method. So that means landfills contributed almost as much as electricity for the state of New York. So this composting stuff, this is real. This is actually significant. Significant. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to something here. Okay. Back in the Sierra space segment, you mentioned an autonomous spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Now, with Tesla's autopilot, it seems like more and more people are thinking about autonomous vehicles. Oh, yeah. What other autonomous vehicles did you see on the show floor? Uh, There were a lot. Some companies you may have heard of before, like Canoe or Arrival, uh, John Deere. There was a this company called Snowbot, uh, which is an autonomous snowblower. And anybody who lives in the Midwest and has a driveway, I think would really Please enjoy tell that. It's electric too. Yeah, it was electric. Oh, for sure. Oh, God. for sure. Yes. Electric and yeah, nothing. Nothing would be worse than an autonomous <laughs> gas-powered snowblower. <laughs> well, I mean, it wouldn't be much different would, than the manual the gas-powered of, snowblowers that are out there right yeah. now. Which is which is also those in the leaf blowers the device of endless annoyment. <laughs> Um, they are. They're just like one of the more annoying things. And I know it's not a big deal. I know we have real problems, but let's be honest. These things so are obnoxious. And they smell yep. and they're fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. PM 2.5. I'm not going to go there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, keep mm-hmm. going. Okay. Yeah. So this snowblower, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, right? So there are types of snow that snowblowers don't work on. So, and I wasn't able to figure <laughs> out, you know, heavy, wet snow. You still have to get out there and do it yourself. 
really yeah. one of the big reasons why I moved to California. My friends would try to get me to go to Tahoe, and I'm like, "Why? Why would you? <laughs> why would you go to snow? Oh, it'll be great, just a weekend, you know." I'm like, "Why? I lived 30 years with that. I don't want to go to snow. I'm getting away from yeah, snow." Yeah, you know, this is hilarious because I grew up in California. Now I live in New England. <laughs> well, California and Oregon, but that's a long story. And every time it snows, I'm like, "This is magic. <laughs> this is like I'm in a movie." You know, this is so cool. Snow. And all the people who grew up here are like, fuck, it's <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about robots. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, go for it. So what, what kind of robots did you see there? Well, there were lots of different types. There were some bipedal robots. There were some um, Boston Dynamics robots. A lot of the robots I saw, though, are on wheels, um, providing a variety of different um, activities. Uh, service robots were very popular, or server or service robots, however you want to say it. And there was, uh, this is the whole idea here is contactless delivery of something you need, right? Uh, so think of them as like waist-high shelving units on wheels, <laughs> basically. And uh, I spoke with one South Korean company called Storant. I hope I said that correctly. And uh, they are focused on making a mostly autonomous and antivirus, with quotes, restaurant. Uh, my name is SM Gwan from uh, Strength, and our goal is to make a virus-free space. That's why we brought our system here to show you. Uh, first one is a barista system, and uh, second is an antivirus table. Actually, we special kit installed underneath the table and during the air circulation, our UV light killed the virus or bacteria. So after that, only fresh air comes out from the bottom and go into the top. So, and then second is a, like a um, sanitizer lover. So once customer leave the table, this robot is coming to the table and spread uh, hydrogen vapor. It also clean up the table surface and eliminate the virus or bacteria. Uh, and there's another one, it's a serving robot. So we make uh, about 50 di different kind of uh, uh, coffee or drink or beverage. And serving robot, is take uh, what you order and to the your uh, the table you sitting. So whole system is a uh, work together. We develop uh, everything here. You anticipate that these um, that restaurants would install devices like this in yeah. all of their tables, right? And they would have the umbrella over top <laughs> in the yeah. restaurants, right? Yeah, we have a ten restaurant in Korea. And one of them, we already changed the chair and table. And we have, have a plan to change the last of nine restaurants until uh, coming May. So have you done any uh, research on how effective the antivirus tables can be at reducing uh, bacteria or virus load? Yeah, we already uh, got the certification from the government agents. So if you look at uh, about uh, nine, 98%, drum net cannot move to the other side. Okay. 
So I know it's a little confusing at the end. What he's showing me is he took me around to show me this screen that has a video clip of air particles that are, that are in the air and they cannot cross over this invisible line on the table because there's a continual stream of air that's blowing up through the table and that prevents the particles from traveling past. So if you can think about you'd have one of these between you and the other person at your table who you're eating with, then you're sort of protected from their uh, whatever germs might be in their body that they're expressing, you know, through their breath. Now, one thing I will point out, though, is that maybe in South Korea, they're not going to have a problem calling it the antivirus table. But, you know, this is me, like former healthcare reporter. <laughs> it's not going to fly with the FDA. Maybe they'll call it maybe antimicrobial or another more general term uh, so that they're not claiming a protection from a virus. This is interesting to me because I feel like this idea of, you know, increased sanitation. It, first off, restaurants are so low tech these days. I mean, you go in, you talk to a human being, you place an order, at least restaurants in the United States, you know, they bring you out your food. They, they write things on little slips of paper, oh my goodness. you know, and there's so many opportunities for automation. Mm -hmm. You know, that again, in the United States, these are very low tech. When you go to Tokyo, totally different matter. You go to Tokyo, you type in your order on this, on this vending machine. And then I remember I first got there, I thought, oh, vending machine, you know, in the United States, vending machines are... There's usually not very good food that comes out of vending machines. So you see a vending machine, you're like, uh, I don't know about this place. I don't want to go here. We went to three different temporary restaurants. We kept, they all had vending machines. So we were fine, like, to hell with it. We'll do it. Food was amazing. Had no, no bearing on the quality of the food, but they used the vending machine. We figured out later, I believe, so that the servers didn't, and others didn't have to get their hands dirty with the money. Mm -hmm. So that they could have, they could just deal with presenting you your food. And so it seems like this is the next natural evolution of that is, okay, let's have a robot yeah. present the food. Oh, absolutely. You know? I mean, I'm sorry. Like I was at a restaurant last night and do you ever have that moment when the waiters or waitress is taking your order and in the back of your mind, you're like, they're going to screw it up. I can just see it already. <laughs> it's going to happen. And they uh -huh. did. Right. And I was like, I knew it. And like, part of me is because I used to be a server when I was in college, right? I did high-end restaurant serving. So that's part of my problem is when I go to a restaurant, I know what you're supposed to do at a high-end restaurant. <laughs> and I'm like, have to like keep my mouth shut and just grin and bear it. But like, how many times have people forgotten to bring you something after you asked for it or gotten your order wrong or whatever, Right. I'm mm -hmm. actually looking forward to just being able to use kiosk. I was actually looking at this guy and he's got his little notebook and everything. And I'm like, why don't servers have touchscreens? Like everything yeah. that is available on the menu should just be a touchscreen. And you boom, 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 boom. It goes to the kitchen. Like, why don't we do that? Mm -hmm. Probably because restaurants have really, really tight margins. Yeah, tight margins. Small businesses operating mm -hmm. them. You know, it, certainly I think you'll see the big chains adopting this sort of technology first. You see a little bit of it in Europe, though. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And definitely, definitely Japan. In Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Much more automated, yeah. including what seemed like smaller bespoke restaurants, mm. you know, instead of just the big chains. But we haven't talked about transportation oh. yet. Oh, yeah. You're right. One of those things we, so we we'll, geek out on all the time. We haven't even touched on it yet. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, transportation. Okay. So that was a very big component. Uh, a lot of the big companies had their booths there, BMW, Hyundai, Vietnam's first automaker, VinFast, 
had a big launch. There were a lot of Asian electric vehicle companies and like sometimes you like with electric vehicles and we kind of talked about this in our other episode, um, episode three, why your next car will be an EV, shameless plug. We talked about how there's so many EV companies, so many cars, and how do you really know which ones are going to make it, right? And uh, I kind of, that's kind of how I felt when I was seeing all these companies. So I didn't really stop at those booths too much. Um, but there were like a hundred, cause there's like 190 automotive companies at the show. Wow. It is sort huh. of becoming, it's almost like, almost like a car show. But cars weren't the only thing there, mm-hmm. right? No. There were also a lot. Tell me about the micro mobility companies. Oh yeah. So there were a lot of those. Bird was there. Uh, there are a scooter sharing company and mm-hmm. There were many, 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 many Asian micromobility companies. So I think very similar to the concept of the massage chair distributor, where they're just like going to bring all their wares and have their U.S. meetings. I think it was very similar because there were a lot of micromobility companies that I didn't recognize and brands, I should say, that I didn't recognize. And they all kind of seem to be using the same bike frames and the same battery packs it's so like they're all using the same components. Um, mm. So to me, nothing else really stood out as groundbreaking. But mm. I thought it was an important note that Bird had their big booth there and they had a couple of consumer products uh, that they were peddling. Yeah. And tell me, you also ran across something there that uses batteries and motors for snow. Oh, yeah. So there's this company called Moonbike. They're in out of France, actually the French Alps specifically. And they just mm. set up an office in Boulder, Colorado, which because... It's like it's the French Alps of North America. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the cultural, you know, vibe of Boulder is gonna be quite conducive. I didn't know there were that many hippies and oh yeah, and tech people in the French Alps, but okay, well, sure. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Boulder's pretty conducive to uh an electric snowmobile. And mm-hmm. it's not as bulky as the gas powered uh ones that you may have thought of. It's more like a dirt bike for snow. So the first mm. so the front of it has a ski. And the back of it has a track and you can, hmm. you can really cut into the snow and I bet you there'll be people doing tricks and all kinds of things on this. So I spoke with their U.S. rep, uh, Nicholas Dupre, and uh, he's going to tell us more about moon bikes. This is the world's first electric snow bike, you know, completely battery powered, 100% silent. Um, you can fit two batteries in our battery bank. Each battery will run you about an hour and a half of play. So it's uh, kind of a mix of if you've ever seen a um, ski bike on the mountains, you know, the ones that are just, you know, not motorized or anything. Mix of that and a snowmobile. So we've got a, you know, a track in the back and a ski in the front. It's pretty low to the ground, about four and a half feet up. So the, what's the, what did you say the range is of the bike? An hour and a half per battery. So three hours total. I generally like to go by hours because it changes if you're going uphill, downhill, if you're in deep powder. The last time that I rode, you know, I got about 23 miles on one battery. Okay. And how does that compare to what you might get on a gas-powered snowmobile? A gas-powered snowmobile is definitely a little bit more powerful. You can hit some higher top speeds. So, um, you know, it depends on the size of the tank, but you'll probably be able to go a little farther with that, especially, you know, at those higher speeds. How fast can this go? This can go top speed at 26 miles an hour in our sport mode, but it's a lot more playful than a snowmobile. You know, with a a weight of less than 200 pounds with the batteries included, it has the same feel of um, 
kind of like a dirt bike where you're squeezing with your thighs and you're using your hips and your body weight to really turn. And uh, if you can get used to it, you know, there's a bit of a learning curve, but as there is with anything, you can really get that front ski, the edge there, just dug into the snow and you can really get some nice carving. And uh, how long does it take the batteries to charge? Uh, with our fast charger, two hours. So are these lithium ion batteries? Lithium ion, yep. 72 volt, 35 amp hour. Tell me about the market in Europe for snowmobiles. And who are some of your first customers? Some of our first customers actually, so last year is where we made our first 50 and we sold them all the ski resorts in Europe. So what they did is they bought a fleet from us and because of COVID, you know, the, the ski resort itself was, was closed, but the mountain was still open. So what they did is, you know, with social distancing and everything with COVID, you could rent these out and they'd have a little park built out at the bottom where you could just rip around. Or what they would do is some guided tours. So you'd have a guide um, associated with the mountain or affiliated with the mountain that would uh, take a group of people up and around. That's cool. And so what are you thinking about for the U.S. market? Yeah, we're looking to do the same thing. You know, we've been in talks with a few mountains um, around the Colorado area. That's where we're based now is Boulder, um, Utah area as well. We were just out in Mammoth doing a demo, and they're planning on getting about a 10 to 12 uh, unit fleet here. Uh, we've also got a ton of B2C, so just people that are super interested getting on our website and reserving. So it's, it sort of sounds like we're dealing here with a cross between a conventional snowmobile and a uh, snowboard. Yeah. Do I have that right? Yeah, basically. In terms of the feel, in mm -hmm. terms of what you do with it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, it sounds like fun. It did look like fun. I encourage people to go to their website. They got some good videos up there. Um, they look like a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a pretty wide range of stuff here. I mean, virtual reality, space, transportation, mm -hmm. compost. Compost. <laughs> <laughs> Something in there for everyone. Really? There, <laughs> there are. And there were a lot. I mean, there were so many companies sponsored by their own countries. So in, mm. in at the Venetian... There was a single floor in the basement, but, you know, I was like, that's where all the startups were, companies that are like mm. seed round. So that's one of the places I wanted to go to first, mostly because Nat Goldhaber is a VC who first took me to CES uh, like five years ago now or more. And he was like, we have to go to the startup alley. It's the primordial ooze. You want to mm. go check them out. And then next year... You know, and the year after, if you go frequently, you'll start to see some of these companies coming up from the basement and having like big mm -hmm. booths and, and doing well. And that's and he he really liked that um, experience. And so I definitely did the same thing. I was like, where are all the startups? And every country had a big booth, Switzerland, France, the Ukraine, South Korea, the United States, but that one was like, nobody was there and it was really boring and they just didn't get mm. this whole concept of ink. Like it was a mess, but you know, so there are all these big booths with smaller companies inside them and lots of energy and excitement for the future. Um, and, uh, that was just, it's inspiring. Sounds sort of like the United Nations of new technology. Yeah. And I guess there you get an idea of like what we're going to see in five or 10 years mm -hmm. and what directions things are going to be taking. Because again, it seems like so many of these ideas about technology, they're things that in the past seemed impossible or would never happen. I'm still waiting for my flying car. <laughs> that, one's, that one still has not arrived yet. But you might get an electric vertical takeoff and landing car. 
if you're rich enough. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm more the e-bike <laughs> speed, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's more my, my style, but, um, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, you know, we, there are all of these things that in the past, you know, Star Trek, I, you know, remember start when Star Trek came out, what was that? The sixties mm-hmm. and people were like, oh, you're going to have this device, you know, they had these devices that they pulled out that they communicated with that everybody carried on. They could see each other. In. Yes. You know, I also think they teleported through them. We're not there yet either, but still this device. And then voila, what does everyone have today? Mm-hmm. You know, and at the time it was like, ooh, that's science fiction. You know, we'll never have that. And yeah. yeah. Now people in the developing world who don't have clean water have cell phones. I know. I know. You know? I, know. I, I like watching Star Trek because I'm you know, like the next generation, you know, they have all these tablets that they hand to each other. And I'm like, wow, they really got the whole tablet concept wrong. <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard is like five tablets stacked up on his desk <laughs> and, and yeah things don't always pan out exactly like you think they're going to do they but it's you know um, you're trying right you just because you're yeah. using your you, these people who create the entertainment they're using the information that they have on hand and extrapolating yeah. from there right but but again the metaverse mm-hmm. First in science fiction, mm-hmm. you know, these handheld communicator devices, video conferencing, all of these things were science fiction well before they were reality. Mm-hmm. So this must, you know, it sounds like CES was a fascinating place to see what technology is coming next into our world. And I'm, I'm glad to see that there are some things that have some, you know, real practical applications, not just for entertainment, but also, you know, for growing food, mm-hmm. for helping people to compost. Real problems? You know, for... <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> or helping helping us move to hopefully a more ecological civilization. Mm-hmm. I saw a variety of clean tech sustainability companies, but I would like to see more. I think CES has a real opportunity to foster the innovation that is coming out of the clean energy, clean tech space uh, and really present it to a broader audience and also very influential types of people who come to CES, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Well, let's see what next year's is. Yeah. And until then, thank you so much, Earthlings, for joining us on this, our exploration of the Consumer Electronics Show 2022. Yes. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Rosen. And I'm Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and we will see you on the next turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower. 